You're entering Outer Brightness. Hey, Fireflies. Welcome back to Outer Brightness. This week, we have the uh, extreme pleasure of being flies on the wall for a conversation between uh, Michael Flournoy, uh, Michael, the ex-Mormon apologist, and his brother, David. Uh, So I'm going to uh, step out at this point uh, and just kind of keep time, and uh, I'll let them take it away. Okay, let's go on to the next topic. Uh, Apostasy, Restoration, Revelation. Revelation. Um, I don't have too much to say on Revelation. What would, Revelation is up next. Uh, what What do you got, what do y'all have against Revelation? Is there anything that y'all would have against there Revelation. being Revelation? I mean, I think that if you're going to say that there is more Revelation that God has given us, you have to also be saying that what we have already, aka the Bible, is insufficient. I think that's what revelation implies, because if there is new revelation and it says the same thing that the Bible says, then we don't really need it. And if it says something new, then that means the Bible is not sufficient, that it's not telling us enough. So that's my problem in a nutshell with revelation. Okay. So not necessarily that God would continuously call prophets like he always has, but just that it would, the fact that if he does that that would circumvent the bible and make it incomplete is that right or yeah because here's what here's what happens and i'll use the lds church as an example but it could theoretically happen with any organization that says we receive continuing revelation from god i mean you've got the quran but at least i think muslims have have cut it off where muhammad was the last prophet but you've got multiple prophets and Every time you've got a general conference, right? I mean, it didn't even stop at the Doctrine and Covenants. Every time you've got a general conference, that is scripture, wouldn't you say? Um, Technically, it's not scripture because it's not been uh, unanimously voted on by the apostles. Um, But it is pertinent and it's something that we would want to listen to. Um, But I think if at any point they said something that is contrary to the scripture that we have, you'd have to say, whoa, what's going on here? And, and that's why I, I feel like we can take almost any LDS belief and find at least evidences of it in the Bible. Um, so for me, I, I'm able to justify, hey, this is okay because it there it points to this or points to that. Um, but keep going. Yeah. So it sounds like you sort of have a similar position to me then that if they said something that was against it, um, then either they would have to be saying something totally new that means that the Book of Mormon Doctrine and Covenants and Pro Great Price didn't tell the whole story, right? Or they're speaking incorrectly. I mean, I'm kind of curious what your thought would be if they did teach something that was contrary to uh, to LDS scripture. 
you know, uh, well, I mean, there have been moments where they have said things that were inaccurate. I mean, the, the blacks in the priesthood is probably one of the prime examples. And I, I think it, it goes down to um, these are our men. They are not perfect. Um, just like you've, you've taught me, Jonah ran away from Nineveh. He did not want to go to that city Went the opposite direction. Uh, but God was still able to use him uh, in, in a positive light. Um, I, I would hope that if there was something different that as they evolved, that they would retract the situation like they did with blacks and priesthood. Um, but um, so you would say that the scripture um, is more of an anchor than the LDS leaders. So if they say something and it's not in line with the scriptures, um, you're going to believe the scripture over the living prophets. I feel like you're right that the scripture does not always tell the full story. Um, but as long as it's not something that I believe is contradictory to scripture, and if it's coming from a prophet, I will, I would accept that. If it was something expounding on it, um, like let's say Doctrine and Covenants, uh, what is it, 132, where they talk about, and this is, I believe, George Albert Smith or Justice Fielding Smith. It's like after regular Justice Smith, they have the vision of Jesus organizing um, the, the missionary force in spirit prison. Well, that was, I believe, delivered in the general conference, was it not? And then it was uh, added to scripture later. Um, so something like that where, hey, here is a whole chapter talking about Jesus going to the, to the spirits in prison. And here is a revelation expounding on that then for me, hey, this does not necessarily contradict, but it expounds on it. If the same sort of thing happened in, uh, in general conference, I think I'd, I'd be happy with that. Uh, the thing with, with prophets and re- revelation is Moses was a modern prophet, a living prophet to the people of his time. Daniel was a living prophet to the people of his time, Jeremiah. Um, and so each time God had a a people, there was a living prophet that was giving specific advice to the people of those times. Uh, Daniel telling people, hey, we need to leave Egypt and cross the Red Sea has no pertinence whatsoever to his situation, the people in his era. So I do believe that prophets do have a place uh, in, in guiding the fold. Okay, so one last question, and we're going to jump into the topic that you and I are the most excited to talk about here. Uh, and that is, you know, there's certain things, though, you know, that are totally timeless. Um, for example, the gospel, okay, um, and the nature of God. I don't think those things are going to change based on our current circumstances. And I think that's the biggest problem that I have with LDS Revelation specifically is that it goes against what the clear, plain teaching of the Bible is. Um, in fact, the Book of Mormon even contradicts itself uh, because you see some places in there where it seems to very strongly teach the doctrine of imputed righteousness. And then you find other places where it's like they ask Abinadi, does the law of Moses save us? And he basically says, you know, no, but yes. Like if we do not, if we do not keep the commandments, we will not be saved. Um, So yeah, there, there definitely seem to be some different signals in there. So that's my kind of my issue with it. But anyways, imputation. Let's get into that. Does that sound good? That, that sounds good. Okay, let's do this. So 
this has been something that has been kind of a roller coaster for both of us, um, as we both believe that imputation is true. We don't exactly view it the same way, um, but I kind of want to hear your, well, let me, so I came up with uh, a couple of different kinds of righteousness, um, and I just kind of get your thoughts on each one of them, and then we'll talk about imputed righteousness, okay? So the first kind of righteousness that that I came up with is uh, enabled righteousness, that basically I think most LDS believe this. This is my position as a Latter-day Saint, is that grace is an enabling power. In fact, the, the Bible dictionary really hits this heavy. Grace is an enabling power that allows men and women to take hold of eternal life and to do things that they would never be able to do if they were left to their own means. And so basically it's saying like, hey, um, God's grace is going to make me stronger so that I can keep all of the commandments perfectly and then I will receive eternal life. What are your thoughts on that particular idea? First off, I do believe in enabling grace. Um, there's a scripture uh, that talks about, you know, come unto me, all you that are heavy laden, and I shall give you peace. Take my yoke upon you, for my burden is easy and my something is light. Uh, but the idea is that you're yoking up with the Savior. Um, and when I was in seminary, the, our seminary teacher kind of told us about what happens when two uh, two cattle or ox are evenly yoked. Uh, how much more do you think that they would be able to to pull? And uh, you know, all of us were like, oh, "We're pretty smart." You know, one plus one is two, so it's going to be twice as much. Uh, but that if there are two oxen that are evenly yoked, that they're able to do six times uh, the amount of weight that one oxen would have been able to do on its own. Uh, so it's one of those things that seems counterintuitive. Uh, so the idea of taking the Savior's yoke upon you uh, does mean what Luke 1, I believe it's Luke 170, uh, I can do all things in Christ Jesus, but it does not mean that you will be perfect and that you can obtain salvation. Uh, I think anyone who has ever tried to be a true follower of Christ uh, and is a believer in Christ and saying, hey, I have taken Christ upon me. I am, I have his power, his strength. They are going to become depressed very quickly when they realize that they cannot keep the commandments. They will try and fail. They will repent. They will try. They will fail. And sometimes they make progress and sometimes they, they don't. They make progress in one area and they don't in another uh, so while enabled righteousness is a true thing and it can help to do things that you never could do, like Peter would never have been able to heal the person that was asking for alms outside the temple on his own. That was an enabled righteousness type thing. Um, but no one will be able to have an enabled righteousness to salvation. They will not be able to be perfect. They will fail over and over again. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, I believe in, in an enabled righteousness too, but not in terms of salvation at all. Like for me, it's more of a sanctification thing that like God's going to, well, I mean, not enabled righteousness per se, but an enabling grace where like God's going to help me to overcome some things in my life. But yeah, salvation, there's no way, no how that any of us are ever going to uh, reach perfection or the level that is required to um, 
to obtain eternal life. I mean, the Book of Mormon even is pretty clear on this, that no unclean thing can enter into the presence of God. That was right. But the Book of Mormon does say similar things. Yeah. So, you know, if we go to God with our report card and it's a A minus, that's just, it's just not good enough. Well, it wouldn't be an A minus, to be honest. I mean, um, God cannot look at sin with the least degree of allowance. So even if you were, you know, a monk and you lived celibacy and, you know, almost never committed a sin, I mean, you call your brother Raka, you're in danger of hellfire. I mean, one sin, you go from a 100 to a zero, you fail. Um, so anyways. So what if, what if your parents name your brother Raka, then what? Well, <laughs> yes, intent is important. Um, what was it with King David? He talks about how he doesn't look on the outside appearance, but he looketh on the heart. Uh, so I, I do uh, feel like it's a good thing that Christ is our judge because he... LDS perspective, he committed the atonement. He doesn't just know everything through my omniscience, but he literally suffered and walked in my shoes uh, in a way that we can't quite understand. So he he knows my intent. <laughs> yeah. So the uh, the concept that you were talking about a minute ago that it it drops down to a zero that comes from James chapter two verse ten, by the way, which says, "For whosoever shall keep the whole law." and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. So basically, you know, you mess up in one point, you know, it's it's an F. You know, nobody's going to Judgment Day with an A-. minus. Uh, you're going there with an, an A plus or an F. Um, so let's, let's talk about the second category of righteousness that I came up with, which is uh, joint righteousness. I've definitely heard a lot of Latter-day Saints say this over the pulpit. Um, I will do my best and Christ makes up the rest. What do you think about that? Uh, I mean, this really joint righteousness has to be imputed righteousness. If, if you really think about it, if joint righteousness is I am trying my darndest, but I keep failing, but I'm trying. Um, if Christ is giving you any of it, he's giving you all of it. So, I mean, joint righteousness I mean, we may think that we're doing something, but in reality, the, the cost of our sins is so much more than anything we could possibly do um, that it is it is Christ. Yeah. Well, it's kind of funny because we just finished saying, like, you're going to Judgment Day with an F. And so there's no such thing as a joint, like, righteousness here. Like, it is all Christ because our part is an F. That's what we accomplish, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And even King Benjamin teaches that. Uh, he talks about how we're, you know, worthless and profitable servants. And, you know, even if we do keep a commandment or we do a good thing, God immediately blesses us and we have been paid and we are still a worthless and unprofitable servant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even if we should give all the praise uh, and things which our whole soul has power to possess, we would still be unprofitable servants. So we never can come out of that infinite debt that we owe. Um, and then the third category that I basically came up with is um, sort of an earned or infused righteousness, I guess, where as we are obedient, God gives us some of his righteousness. Um, but I think that that sort of falls under the same categories as the other two, um, where we're never going to get to the point where we've earned all of the righteousness that we could. And my big argument with that has always been that Christ is an infinite being. 
and his righteousness is infinite. And if he gives us any percentage of that, since infinity can't be divided, he has to give it all. Um, would you agree with that? I do agree with that. Okay. So then the only option that is left is imputed righteousness, which means that that righteousness actually comes from Christ himself. It is a one-time event where you are immediately clean as if you had done all that Christ had accomplished. So we, I think we agree up to that point, right? We do agree up to that point. The differences that we have is when does that righteousness come to you? Um, and for me, the Latter-day Saint position is that when you are baptized, that is when you take upon yourself the name of Christ. So we are always children of God the Father because we're spirit children of him, but we are not children of Christ until we have been baptized and entered into this covenant with him. So for me, taking on us the name of Christ, putting on the whole armor of God, at that moment, we have been, all of his righteousness is on us. We are 100% clean and saved um, in a nutshell. I mean, Paul has talked to me and Michael's talked to me, and I, I would say that there probably are uh, exceptions. Um, and I'd like to say that your imputation doesn't happen until you have a come to Jesus moment. But really, I mean, the Bible says that, you know, if you have faith, even the size of the mustard seed, uh, Alma says that even if you have a desire to believe, um, that that's all you need. So I, I really think that the requirements for being a Christian and for being baptized is the starting line. And that is enough for imputed righteousness for him to give you all of it. Okay. So this is a really, really interesting to talk to you about this. And a lot of the things that you're saying, it sounds like exactly the same things that I say. So it's kind of eerie a little bit. Uh, but I know that there's a lot of Latter-day Saints who would listen to this, and this is a, a new concept for them that they're not really familiar with. Um, some are even, like a lot of them that I talk to online are even opposed to the idea of imputed righteousness. So do you think that this really is something that uh, falls in line with LDS doctrine? I, I do. Um, there's another doctrine that LDS have and evangelicals have, which are different names, but they're identical. And this is what the primary focus is for the church. And it is the path of discipleship. And that is the same thing as, to me, it's the same thing as what evangelicals call sanctification. So after you've, for LDS, after you've been baptized, received the gift of the Holy Ghost, you now have all of Christ's righteousness on you. Uh, when you die, your name, his name is on you. You've been washed clean to the blood of the lamb and you will go to the celestial kingdom. I think it's a great point. You wrote an article talking about this with uh, what, what about the people that were we do baptism for the dead for? Well, they're baptized. Are they able to continue sinning? Oh, they're, they're going to go and hunt their, their ex-wife or something. I, they cannot commit sin after they've been baptized. They, are, they have the imputed righteousness of Christ put upon them. And if they accept that, they will go to the celestial kingdom. So why is it any different for us in the living world as it is for them in, in the other world? Uh, and I think we could probably, like, I'm not going to say that there is a 100% we will never fall away 
Uh, but I do think it is very difficult to lose salvation. Um, I, I know evangelicals would say that you cannot lose salvation. I would say you would have to completely deny Christ. And if that's the case, did you really have salvation? Um, but I think that would, for me, that would be the point where I'd say, hey, what, what's going on here? Um, you just lost two points for presenting the once saved, always saved doctrine as a Latter-day Saint. Me? Okay, yep. cool. I lost two points. Uh, but the, the idea of discipleship and sanctification is that it's a lifelong uh, process of trying to become more and more like the person that we're following. Uh, so we're disciples of Christ. We want to be like Christ. We want to uh, forgive, um, like Jesus healed the ear of the, the centurion that uh, was taking him to go get whipped, you know, after Peter chopped it off. We, we want to have these attributes that we're putting into our life, but not for salvation, but to be more like the one who has saved us. Okay, so there's two questions that I, I kind of have. No pressure, by the way, um, on this. Uh, but first of all, I mean, you you talked about the imputed righteousness of Christ coming upon us at the moment of baptism. But we know that there are more ordinances beyond baptism in the LDS church. Um, and let's just talk about the endowment specifically, because I know that with the ceiling, at least you can say, well, that's to be to be married in heaven and and all that. But is an endowment something that you would say is necessary for us to have righteousness if we've already got the full righteousness of Christ. Absolutely not. And I have preached this from the pulpit. I've said, what are the things that we needed to be saved? Uh, multiple verses, faith, repentance, being baptized, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, enduring to the end. Those are the only things that we need to actually do as a Latter-day Saint to be saved. Heck, screw enduring to the end, replace it with discipleship. Um, that's, that's our salvation. We don't those four things, once we've had imputed righteousness imputed on us, we are naturally going to endure to the end. We are naturally going to be a disciple of Christ. Um, what the temple does ha has nothing to do with salvation at all, and it has everything to do with what we are doing in the next world. Uh, endowment, and I'm not going to get too much into it, but the, the promised blessing is that we will be kings and queens. Uh, that So that is a title of leadership that we would then have rather than just being a citizen of, of heaven. Um, and then exaltation, you are married with your spouse. Okay. So just um, to clarify, so somebody who is baptized receives the Holy ghost and then doesn't get married for whatever reason, uh, they are worthy enough to be exalted. They just don't have a spouse. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Um, and this is where it kind of gets, it gets nice. The, the actual handbook talks about uh, people that are single in the church. And I'll have to find this, but there was this wonderful fifth hour or third hour Sunday that we had on the fifth Sunday where they answered things straight out of the church handbook. And I'm not exactly sure where it's at, but it was addressing this issue. And it specifically said that the church doctrine is people that have not had the opportunity to be married. Uh, will have that opportunity um, in the millennium. So if you are 100% worthy and let's say you have autism or you got abused in your first marriage and you were bitter and you had a hard time finding love again. Or you were bald. Or you were Sorry. bald. Um, I didn't I mean, see that. Yeah. <laughs> 
there's probably, what is it like 30% or more of the population of the adult membership is single. Um, so this is something that has been addressed that there will be every opportunity uh, for that, even if you die without it. So the living don't actually need the temple at all. Like if it wasn't for baptisms for the dead, exaltation could still totally happen. In fact, even the dead don't need the temple because, except for baptism, because all that stuff could be arranged in the next life, right? I don't know if I would say, well, it, ideally, the it's in the millennium. Um, and that's what the old uh, gospel principles manual talked about that. And, and we've talked about this before, too, that LDS position is that after the earth is burned and Christ comes for his millennial reign, that it's not just members of the church that are going to be baptized, but it's going to be any believer in Christ. So Paul will be there. Michael will be there. Ideally, I will be there. Um, any, anyone who believes in Christ will be there. Uh, and so it says that there will be two uh, main works going on during the millennium. Uh, the first is missionary work and the second is temple work. And eventually there won't be missionary work anymore. It will all be temple work. I do feel like after the millennium is completed and we've had everyone's final judgment. Yeah. At that point you, you've missed the boat, but I mean, there's going to be plenty of opportunity. Uh, I, I don't think that anyone's going to have to worry about going without. Okay. Let me move on to my, my last question about imputed righteousness. We can kind of talk about this, but because it's the main sticking point for us, because obviously if Christ's imputed righteousness comes to us at faith, then everything that you kind of have been saying about the temple would also be true about baptism. And there's really no need for the LDS church at all at that point, right? If it comes at faith. Yeah. If, if it came at faith and that's, this that is the point that led you away from the church, if I'm not mistaken. It, it is because I was pretty much sitting exactly where you are for a while. Um, I just didn't hold on as long, but I was trying to take the position that imputed righteousness occurs at baptism. Okay, so me in my last, you know, five or six months as a Latter Day Saint, on the exact same page as you right now. I'm like, this is. Uh, you know, I believe that it comes at baptism. Uh, but then, you know, there was a lot of, there's a lot of verses and we can talk about them, but I came to believe that that in, imputed righteousness comes at faith. And the problem was, I'm like, okay, well, that righteousness includes all the acts of good and keeping God's law that Christ did while he was alive and Jesus was baptized. Um, if the LDS church is true and it's a restoration, he would have gone through all the temple ordinances. And so, why do I need to do that if that righteousness is already imputed to me? And so, yes, that is the main catalyst that had me leave the church and has me staying out of the church. Um, I don't care as much about all the other things. Like to me, this is the gospel uh, of imputation that faith alone saves us. Yeah, I, I say that his his grace is imputed to us which is infinite uh i know you would say that his life is a vicarious ordinance in our behalf i would um, say exactly that <laughs> i i know because you have said it exactly to me um i would say that he paid the ultimate price uh for every sin that could possibly ever be committed in every situation on every potential world for eternity um and he has paid that price already and he's given us the grace um as a latter-day saint i 
I don't say that his life is given, like he's lived my life for me, but that he's whatever I've done is washed clean through the blood of Christ. Um, so for us, we still have to make our own covenants and promises with God. Um, but we are washed through the, uh, through the grace of blood, through, through his grace. Okay. So let me talk just about a couple of verses and you can kind of, kind of chime in as you'd like to, but I actually want to go somewhere I wasn't expecting to go. It just kind of popped into my head right now. Okay. I haven't even really thought about this till right now, but Matthew chapter three, the baptism of Christ. Okay. He's going to get baptized by John and, and John protests, right? You're the one who should be baptizing me, right? Correct. Um, okay, here we go. And the way Jesus responds to that, this is Matthew 3, verse 15. And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And I believe that the LDS position is that he was baptized as sort of a model so that people would know the path that they should take. Yeah, the connection scripture to that is at the end of Second Nephi. Um, Second Nephi is actually a great one. Um, 31 is a fun one, but we're not going to get into that. Uh, 30, where the crap is it? Oh, I'm not allowed to say that word on your podcast, am I? <laughs> Which word? Cult? That's not allowed. Yeah. Uh, it is 31. Sorry. Um, so just kind of going along with that. Wherefore I would, uh, I would that you should remember that blah, 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 prophet, which the Lord showed unto me that should baptize the Lamb of God, which should take away the sins of the world. And now if the Lamb of God, he being holy, which our interpretation is perfect, should have need to be baptized by water to fulfill all righteousness. Oh, then. How much more need have we to be baptized? Da, 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 da. Okay, here it is. Uh, and now I would ask of you, my beloved brethren, wherein the Lamb of God did fulfill all righteousness uh, by being baptized by water. So this is direct question to that scripture, um, which is interesting because it wasn't written yet. But where, did, how did he fulfill all righteousness by being baptized? Uh, knowing not that he was holy, notwithstanding being holy, he showeth unto the children of men that according to the flesh, he humbleth himself before the, the Father, and witnesseth unto the Father that he would be obedient in keeping his commandments. Wherefore, after he was baptized with water, the Holy Ghost is in um, So basically, the LDS position is he did it to keep a commandment. Okay. Um, so I'm just, I'm just looking at this here, and I'm just looking at the Bible, letting it speak for itself, not putting the Book of Mormon with it. Because I actually think it, it's a stronger, um, I think the Bible's stronger on its own without uh, the Book of Mormon, but that's just me. Uh, but he says, suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. So obviously Christ um, was righteous. He was he was holy, right? I mean, he was mm -hmm. keeping the, the law, um, but I would say that this is a, a sign that he is doing this as something that he's going to impute to us later. Um, he's he's doing things so that he can fulfill all righteousness uh, so that there can be a trade that's going to take place on the cross. He takes our sin. We take his righteousness. This is actually called double imputation. I don't know if you've heard of double imputation before. Uh, it's going to be your new favorite thing. Trust me, because you're a Flournoy. Uh, but yeah, so we believe that there was a, a trade there. Uh, I want to go. You can, if you have any comments on that, feel free. Um, there's another verse I want to go to, but I got to find it real quick. Gotcha. I, I do have a, a thought about that, but I don't want to derail where you're at right now. So I'll wait till you're where you're at. Okay. So he's, 
in Matthew 5 here, Jesus is talking about the law and how strict that law is. You know, uh, if you if you're angry at your brother without a cause, you'll be in danger of judgment. You know, if you look after a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart, um, all these things. And he says, if I say unto you, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven, uh, which was a pretty big deal to them. Like to us, we're like, oh, those guys aren't even that impressive. Right. But in the culture at the time, that's like saying, hey, unless you're more righteous than the prophet and the apostles, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's kind of a big deal. Okay. Um trying to find this particular verse. It's kind of eluding me at the moment. Oh, that's right. So Jesus says, um, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I came not to destroy, but to fulfill. Um, basically, I've come to fulfill the law. You know, like the, he gives the problem. The law is so strict that nobody can keep it, but he's there to fulfill the law so that it can be kept perfectly so that that can be transferred to us. So your thought with that scripture is this is the entirety of the law, whereas Latter-day Saints take this as this is fulfilling the law of Moses and the law of sacrifice, that after Christ has given his life and his blood, there shall be no more sacrifice. Um, so I, there is that difference between our ideology, uh, but I, I can see where you're coming from. Well, he says, um, what does he say exactly there? Um, think not that I've come to destroy the law, but to fulfill. Because doesn't he say, till heaven and earth pass, not one jot or tittle shall be done away until all is fulfilled, right? Isn't that how he puts it? Matthew 5, I think it's in there somewhere um, towards the end. While you're looking for that, um, the, the main scripture for continued baptism for Latter-day Saints is it's the famous one. You all know it. It's John chapter three, uh, his conversation with Nicodemus. Uh, I am familiar that evangelicals thoughts on this is that being born of the water is your first birth and being born of the spirit is your come to Jesus moment. Um, but Latter-day Saints view this as being baptized by water and being baptized by the spirit. Uh, so it says, uh, first three, Jesus entered unto him and said, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Uh, Nicodemus said unto him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, rarely, rarely, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter in the kingdom of God. Uh, I, I just can't think that this is talking about entering into your mother's womb or being born at all because why would he bring it up a second time as a condition, except you be born of water and the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Um, I know that's up for debate, but this is one of the main biblical verses for us as, Hey, this is a requirement. Um, one to see it. And then with both of those born of the water and the spirit to actually enter the kingdom of God. Uh, and that, along with some of the other scriptures that are found in the Book of Mormon, specifically 2 Nephi 31, uh, really lead me to believe that this is the moment that uh, his righteousness is imputed to us. Okay, so first of all, um, it never says, like, the word baptism in that whole passage. It says, uh, by the water and of the Spirit. And so I guess the way I would explain that is uh, he would 
say it again as a condition because Nicodemus doesn't get it the first time. Like he's completely going off into la la land, right? Well, I can't spit back in my mother's womb. He's like, look, you don't get it. Let me make it simple for you. You have to be born of water. So you have to be born and of the spirit. Like there's two, I'm talking about two births here. So I think that's why, I mean, I don't think it's really that far-fetched for him to explain it as a condition because he's not, he's not explaining it as a condition. He's, well, it is a condition, but he's talking to be born of the water. The reason he's even mentioning it is to differentiate it from the birth of the spirit. That's why I think that he's saying it there. Okay. And I can respect your opinion on that. Okay. We, yeah. we do disagree on that, but um, I can respect you. But let me go to Matthew 5 here. Okay. Um, this is starting in verse 17. I finally found it. I don't know why I was having so much trouble. Uh, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. And then in verse 19, he starts talking about whoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments. So he's he is talking about the commandments of God, and that is what he has come to fulfill specifically. So he is there to, to be obedient. I mean, the scriptures say that he became sin who knew no sin for us. Uh, he became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Uh, just talking about that trade, but really where I want to go is, um, you probably already know exactly where I want to go. And that I know, is but while you're going there, my Romans quick four. rebuttal on this is everything that he says over the next couple of chapters through the Sermon on the Mount is specifically referring to they said of old, thou shalt not commit adultery. And then he's saying the higher law, I'm telling, I say unto you, shall not look upon a woman to lust after her. And so when he's talking to me, when he's talking about the least of these commandments, it is everything that he is referencing in the old law, the law of Moses, that this is now being fulfilled. Uh, so for me, it's still, it's a differentiation of, of interpretation. Um, okay. Yeah. So we definitely do see that very differently. Like I remember being LDS and thinking God's um, updating the law of Moses here. And I don't think he's updating it at all. I think he is showing them how strict that law already is. Like, look, we think that the law of Moses, like, well, not necessarily the law of Moses, okay, but he's just showing them what, what God's law is and what it has been all along. Like, this is what God's standard is. And if you think that you are righteous because you're keeping the law of Moses, like, you don't really truly understand what God's standard is. Like, you know, they've said before that you shouldn't commit adultery, but I'm telling you, this is what the standard is. If you look at a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart and basically just showing them what what god's standard really is and i think the best example of this is the rich young ruler going to christ and saying what commandment shall i keep to have eternal life and so jesus says well you know here's what the commandments are he says oh i've been doing this my whole life you know basically yeah i'm keeping the the commandments and then jesus says what go and sell all that you have and follow me and you will have treasure in heaven and then immediately the young man's convicted he walks away sorrowing and I, the way I see it is he couldn't have been keeping all the commandments because what's the first commandment? To if, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. Yeah. And if he couldn't get rid of his treasure 
to follow Jesus, did he really love God with all his heart? So it doesn't actually say whether he ended up doing it or not, just that he walked away sorrowful. Um, but it was it was a challenge. So, I mean, you can't keep every commandment without, as you say, without having love for God. Um, yeah. Well, then immediately after that, the apostle, you know, he says it is easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And his apostles are saying, well, then who can be saved? And he says, with men, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So again, kind of with that imputed righteousness, you know, you cannot get there without me, you know, you need, you need God to get there. Um, but, but going into to Romans four, a little bit here, uh, Starting in verse three, it says, what says, what saith the scripture, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. So it says right there, when, when Abraham believed God, it, it counted his righteousness. Uh, but he asked this question um, and he's obviously, he's talking to a different audience than today where they believe that circumcision was vital. But the question that he asks them is, uh, was he counted righteousness before he was circumcised or after? He was circumcised. And in this case, it was before. Yeah. So it is It is before um, he is obedient to what God tells him to do. He's already righteous because he believed. Um, and then he says he received the sign of circumcision. This is in verse 11. A seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had, yet being uncircumcised. So the circumcision was a seal of the righteousness that he already had. Basically, it was a witness to that that righteousness. And I believe that baptism works exactly the same way um, as that. So pretty pretty clear illustration there. Uh, but really towards the end is, uh, it says verse, verse 22, therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. So basically he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded what he had promised, he was able also to perform, uh, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but to, for us also to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Um, so just right there, it is um, it is tied to uh, believing in Christ when that imputation occurs. Um, so along with that, I mean, this is one of those things where, I know you like to tie this into baptism. Uh, I feel like the ideology that was going on is that they were trying to bring circumcision into Christianity. Hey, this was part of the old law. Let's continue doing this. And they're trying to stop circumcision. Uh, Romans, as I understand, each of these books were an epistle to uh, the people of Thessalonians, the the church in in Rome. uh, And it's all part of one epistle okay um i guess all i was going to say is if we go on two chapters more um they're still talking about i mean chapter five is talking about being justified in christ adam fell uh chapter six does talk a lot about baptism and becoming a new creature in christ uh so i i do feel like even though circumcision is being uh nixed that there is a talk of still following christ through baptism uh, specifically verse uh, four of Romans chapter six, but uh, we can, we can move on. Yeah. Um, sorry. I wasn't saying that we're, we're out of time. I was just trying to figure out how much time we have left for this 
Oh, we're, we're there. Okay. So last comment I'm going to make on this. If you want to say one last thing you can, but uh, I don't, I think, yeah, he's talking to, to different people in the different letters, but the gospel is not going to change based on who he's talking to. Um, it's still going to be completely true. And, you know, he, I think righteousness is only imputed to us one time. And I think you would agree with that. I do agree with that. And, and so if it's happening at faith, like he says here in Romans chapter four, uh, then it, it cannot be at baptism also. And I think for him to follow up with baptism later and talk about it, it's got to be the sanctification process, which occurs afterwards. And this is just one of those points where we disagree. Um, okay. I, I am just going to read this real quick, and then uh, that will probably much be my ending. Uh, Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in the newness of life. Uh, so I think just talking about walking in that newness of life is we are 100% clean at that point. Um, that's just my my belief that fits in with LDS uh, theology. If I 100% agreed with you, I'd be Protestant. Uh, so we can disagree. Um, ultimately, I think any anyone that's listening, it, you know, I think we've both made our, our points, but it's if that's between them and God to, to whatever they decide to do. Okay, sounds good. So let's move on to our final topic here. And this is finally a topic that we haven't rehashed a million times. I think we've started talking about it once and then said, let's save it for the podcast. Um, but being heirs of God. So I just want to read the passage here in Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 16 and 17. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Haven't thought on this a whole lot, but it kind of caught my eye the other day. I was reading this and I was like, wow, it says that if we're children, then we're heirs. And uh, the first thought that jumped into my head is, well, aren't we all children of God in LDS theology? And, yeah, that's where you uh, go to verse 15. It talks about the spirit of adoption. Um, so for me, that's talking about, well, I don't keep going, keep going. No, no, no. I mean, that's exactly where I was going to go too, because I know that Mosiah, uh, in, in Mosiah, it says that, uh, Christ spiritually begets us when we, uh, when we come to, so like we become children of Christ and I'm pretty sure that any Latter-day Saint is going to believe that that is the point where we become children of God. Like it's talking about that. And I'm not going to argue that point because I sort of believe similar, similarly, I, um, I don't believe like that Christ himself adopts me. I just, I'd say God adopts me to be a son. Um, so yeah, I, I'm okay with that up to that point. So I guess, you know, you mentioned earlier that we become children of Christ, uh, when we are baptized, uh, my position is that we are children of God when we believe in him. And uh, and so I guess it just kind of goes along with the same. It, it really follows imputation really closely because if we're heirs of God, again, do we need temple ordinances? So here's, here's my thought. Um, I So Christ and the church are often considered as 
the bridegroom and the, the church is the bride. Uh, he's going to, going to marry the church sort of thing. Um, and so I, I really like the marriage analogy. Uh, for me, faith is our relationship. Like me and my wife, we had a relationship. We loved each other before we got married. Um, otherwise, why are we getting married? <laughs> you know, um, but we are not legally married and she does not take my name until we actually are married. So for me, having faith in Christ, it is the most important thing, but we haven't been married to him yet until we're baptized. Uh, and I feel like that's probably the best analogy to um, describe imputation, adoption, all, all the fun stuff is just, yes, there is a relationship. That relationship is the most important thing, but you have to be married. <laughs> uh, otherwise you're living in sin. Um, and so for my point of view is yes, we have a wonderful relationship with Christ and that leads us to seal the deal through baptism. That's our ordinance. Um, yes. Okay. Uh, but what, what the analogy that the scripture uses here is adoption. I mean, that's what it's talking about in, uh, in Romans eight, right. Is the adoption yeah. of sons whereby we cry, Abba father. Um, and so I want to, I want to keep it to the adoption because, um, I believe that it's God that adopts us, you know, it's not us adopting God. Uh, but I kind of want to go to John chapter one here. Uh, cause I, I do believe that it's at, at belief that we are, children of God. It says right here, but as many as received him to them, gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So it's, it's God's will that is causing us to be uh, born again, to uh, receive that adoption of sons. And it occurs at, at belief. And I think that if it happens at, at baptism, I mean, you make the choice to be baptized and it's something that you are doing to make that adoption happen. And I think that becomes the will of man at that point. So along the same lines, like, I don't think I know anybody. I'm sure there are experiences. Paul's probably the perfect example of pretty much being pulled into Christianity. But for the most part, I feel like we are seeking a relationship with God. We feel like there's something missing from our lives and we start turning to the scriptures. We start turning to prayer. We start turning to the pastors or the missionaries. And so there, whether it's baptism or it's searching and seeking, I feel like there is something that leads to belief. You don't just suddenly one day believe for 98% of the population, I, I feel like there is study, there is questions, there is prayer. Um, so I, I don't, I have a hard time feeling like, yes, it is God that, that, that brings you to it. But I feel like that's more of him answering your, your prayers. Uh, otherwise it's, it goes to the, the 144,000 from other faiths, I'm not 
I guess I already did. <laughs> Anyways, where these are the only ones that are going to be saved, but everyone else, you'll, you'll probably still be happy if you believe. Uh, it's like God dictating who's saved. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, so I'm looking at Romans 8, like verse 7 and 8 too. Back at Romans uh, back there. It says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Um, Jesus also says elsewhere in scripture, no man can come unto me except the father draws him. Um, So I don't think that we are capable of choosing Christ without God making the first the first move, you know, we're, it's not us willing ourselves to, to have that faith. You know, I think that he's the one that courts us in a way. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so it, it goes here too. Uh, it, it basically says in verse 14, for as many as are led by the spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And I think even Latter-day Saints have to agree that, nobody gets baptized except the spirit is leading them. Right. I do agree with that. And so if they're being led by the spirit of God, according to Romans eight fourteen, they must be sons of God. And according to verse 17, if you are children, then heirs. And so they must be heirs of God before they go into the waters of baptism. I'm just rereading it. That's okay. Take your time. You know, it's interesting uh, that you talked about the uh, the the flesh and enmity. I mean, that's almost a. There's a scripture in the the Book of Mormon that pretty much says the exact same thing: the natural man is an enemy of God and always will be uh, until he becometh a saint through the atonement of Christ, sort of thing. Um, so I mean, very, very similar, uh, doctrines in the, in the Bible here and the Book of Mormon. Um, honestly, I hadn't really thought much about, uh, children of God. Uh, I mean, throughout my mission and stuff like that, I had always thought of this scripture as a, as a very interesting scripture to say, Hey, we are children of God. And what do like, if you're a puppy, and you have a dog and the dog has a puppy, that puppy's going to grow up to be like that dog. And so I thought this was kind of an interesting way to say, hey, we will be able to inherit the celestial kingdom. We'll be like our heavenly father, uh, being children of, of God. Um, there is one script verse in the scripture uh, that does kind of, it it changes it a little bit. It, get, it does give the LDS an out. Um, and it just says, if so be that we suffer with him. Um, and I, I feel like we can tie that scripture to Matthew chapter three, where he says, suffer to be so now for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Um, I mean, what does it mean to suffer with him? I mean, obviously we are not going to get up on the cross. We're not asked to be whipped. Uh, I mean, we're told, and I, I believe it's Isaiah that with his stripes, we are healed. Uh, so, I mean, a lot of these things we're not supposed to do with him. Uh, but it does say 
that we suffer with him. And I don't know what that means. I mean, I know there's one time when I was on my mission and I was on my bike and my companion was right behind me. It's pouring down rain. Uh, the streets in Fresno did not have great drainage. So as the cars drove by, we're getting tidal waves of nasty, dirty water. And there was a guy in the street that just started pointing at us, yelling at us. And he threw a Dr. Pepper can at me. And uh, my first thought was, man, if I wasn't a missionary, I could drink that. <laughs> but my second thought was Jesus has suffered worse. And I, I had that feeling that I was suffering with him. I was suffering for his name. Okay. Uh, um, sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. No, no, I'm, actually, I'm actually really glad that you mentioned the second part of that verse. Cause I do have some thoughts on that too. So there's basically two statements that are made. And I know I've said this to you, but I'm going to go a little further. Um, he says, if we're children, then we're heirs. So that's statement one. Statement two, if so be that we suffer with him. And I think that suffering is a natural result of being a child of God. Because if it is, if it is not, if both statements are not always simultaneously true, then one of them is a lie. Um, unless both have to be true by default. And what's interesting is the next verse, verse 18, he says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So he's writing Romans to the believers. And here in verse 18, he is assuming that they are suffering because they are believers. And especially at this time, bro, as you know, the Romans are hunting down Christians and they are killing them for no other reason except that they are Christian. Right? Mm -hmm. And Jesus tells his disciples, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because I have chosen you, gospel. Yep. <laughs> but because I've chosen you out of the world, the world hates you. Um, but yeah, we totally both agree that the prosperity gospel is uh, bad news. So that's good, at least. Uh, but yeah, I, I do think that it is um, a total natural part of being a child of, of God it means that there will be suffering um, that is going to come from that. But I think the the statement here seems to stand by itself. If we are children of God, then we are heirs. And all those who are led by the spirit are the sons of God. And so just, I guess my concluding statement, and you can have the last word on this, is that the spirit of God is leading me. I believe in Christ. Um, the scriptures say that no one can call Jesus the Christ, but by the Holy Ghost. And so by the Bible itself, I am left to believe that I am an heir of God. Um, and because of that, I, I feel no need to return back to the LDS church or, uh, or look at it, you know, too seriously, because it, it says here that the spirit is all I need. Gotcha. Um, I mean, I, I love my savior as well. Um, I mean, I, I don't know where I'd be without the confidence that, that he's got my back and my front and everything. Um, I, I am grateful to hear, 
uh, your, your testimony and your faith. I mean, it, it does me good. Uh, I, I think after hearing about you leaving the church, I was worried that like so many others that you were going to be just away from God in, in general. So the fact that you are with God uh, makes me happy. Uh, from my Latter-day Saint perspective, um, whether you are a member of the church or not, if you are a believer in Christ, you will be around during the thousand year millennium of Christ. Uh, if I'm right, I have no reason to worry about you or Paul because you'll be there. Um, and even if you're not alive during the millennium and you die and you're in spirit prison and all of a sudden two missionaries come up to you and start preaching the plan of salvation. I mean, then, I mean, I, I don't have any doubt in my mind that if, if that, if I'm right, that you will be saved. Uh, I, I don't think there's any any issue with me saying that, yes, my brother is going to be in the celestial kingdom. Paul is going to be in the celestial kingdom. Um, I, I don't worry about you guys at all. Yeah. And I don't really worry about you either, but it's for different reasons. Um, I did worry about everybody in the family a lot, just to be honest. Um, I do believe that Latter-day Saints can be Christian, that they can be uh, heirs of God and they can be born again and, and all of that. Uh, but I do believe that it's a false gospel, and I don't believe that a false gospel can save. And so the reason I don't worry is because I've just kind of come to a place where I'm like, I trust God to, you know, to work everything out. Uh, but, you know, I do I do hope for people in the family. Um, I don't worry, but I hope. Um, I hope just for uh, for everyone in the family to have a complete and utter trust in Christ, not to have any distractions, you know, to, to believe fully and I, and to believe in the, in the true gospel. And obviously you and I have disagreements on that, but, but yeah, I do, I do hope for things in the future. And that's just me being honest. It's not me trying to be mean or anything like that. Sounds like we both have a very similar thing. We, we trust that God's going to, to take care of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, bro, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and, and talking to me, uh, if nothing else, I just hope that this is a uh, a lesson because I know that so many people leave the LDS church and then they have no relationship with their family afterwards. Um, and I hope that this is just something that shows people, one, that it's possible and maybe how you can talk to family members where you don't have to ruin it. You know, um, I think there's definitely a place. I mean, nobody in the family um has disowned me you know i still have a, I, <laughs> I still have just as good a relationship with everybody as i did before um and it's not because i'm like pretending that i don't have beliefs i mean i think everybody in the family knows what i believe because a certain somebody in our family shares all my posts to their facebook wall <laughs> Love you. Love you. <laughs> um but yeah i mean do you have any any closing thoughts on uh I guess that kind of thing, like if somebody leaves the church, like maybe the other Latter-day Saints, like how to respond to that? Uh, yeah, you know, if people leave for a number of reasons. Um, I would say that my first thing is just not to assume anything. I mean, I, I don't know how many times I've, I've talked to somebody or heard from members that have left the church in different forms that people assumed that they just wanted to sin or that it was easier to be outside of the church. 
Um, I mean, you, you don't know why somebody's left. And I think the best thing that, that you can do as a member of the church is just to, to talk with them and say, Hey, I don't know. Like what, what was it that, uh Oh, okay. I feel like having a, a honest conversation where you're seeking to understand where they're coming from uh, without necessarily trying to bring them back. I mean, I would love it if Michael came back, but I am not going to try to force him. I mean, I'm sure he's backed me into several corners today that if he wanted to, he could have dug down deep, but I think just uh, don't assume anything. We thank you for tuning into this episode of the Outer Brightness Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Please visit the Outer Brightness Podcast page on Facebook. Feel free to send us a message there with comments or questions by clicking send a message at the top of the page, and we would appreciate it if you give the page a like. We also have an Outer Brightness group on Facebook where you can join and interact with us and others as we discuss the podcast, past episodes, and suggestions for future episodes, etc. You can also send us an email at outerbrightness at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. You can subscribe to the Outer Brightness Podcast on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Podbeam, Spotify, and Stitcher. Also, you can check out our new YouTube channel, and if you like it, be sure to lay hands on that subscribe button and confirm it. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating and review wherever you listen and help spread the word. You can also connect with Michael the Ex-Mormon Apologist at FromWaterToWine.org where he blogs, and sometimes Paul and Matthew do as well. Music for the Outer Brightness podcast is graciously provided by the talented Brianna Flournoy and by Adams Road. Learn more about Adams Road by visiting their ministry page at adamsroadministry.com. Stay bright, flyerflies. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the holy one of god the word made flesh the risen son heaven and earth will pass away but the word of god Church would remain upon this rock.